Let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 15. 2 Kings 17 verse 15. As you're turning there, I'll share with you, and you probably notice this about yourself, that you get more thankful the longer you're alive. And I'm more thankful for handrails on staircases than I used to be. I I just realized that coming down those stairs a minute ago. I was so thankful. So thank you, Brother Hensley and whoever it was that put those up there. 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 15, where we left off last week with a marvelous truth about God's testimony, about his witness to Israel. We learned a lot about those words, testimony and witness. Maybe it took a little mystery out of the word testimony for you. And now notice in particular the part of the verse that says, we are in 2 Kings 17, verse 15, if you're just tuning in, or if you just now started paying attention in here. 2 Kings 17, 15 and they, that's Israel, rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies which he testified against them. Now let's look at that. Which he testified against them. God didn't just give a testimony or a witness. He testified specifically against Israel. And they didn't like it any more than people like it today. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 31. Romans 8, verses 28 through 31. Now this is a passage that is, has often been the subject of fiery debate and discourse between theologians over the centuries about predestination and so forth. But there is, in this passage, something that I want you to hone in on, and you're going to hear it right at the end of the passage. Listen as I read. And we know that all things work together for them, for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, it's evident from that passage, as we learn about God testifying against Israel, it's evident by this passage that God is not against those who are saved. After all, that's what all of those heavy doctrinal concepts and words in that passage, those words like, predestinate and called and glorified and justified. Boy, that's years worth of teaching right there. But that's what that all adds up to is those are Christians about whom God or about whom Paul is writing in that passage. 
And God is not against Christians. He's for us. He's not against his people, the ones whom he foreknew. And those words keep the saved or should keep the saved from wondering if they're predestinated. They keep the saved from wondering if they were called or if they're justified or if they were glorified. And for some, it can be a troubling passage, but for me, it's a great comfort to know that because I have been predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son, God is for me and not against me. And if he's for me, does it matter who sets themselves against me? It doesn't. Have you put your faith in Jesus' finished work for you? If you have, then you are also predestinated and called and justified and glorified. And God is not against you. And the remnant of the children of Israel in those days, the remnant of this group we're reading about here, who believed in the coming of the Savior could also make the same claim we do from that passage in Romans chapter 8. They can embrace that promise that God was for them and not against them. But against Israel as a whole, just like against mankind today as a whole, against the majority of them, God testified. He testified against them. And for unbelieving Israel, just like unbelieving people today, wrath is waiting on them. But for those who trust in the Lord, the Bible says we're not appointed unto wrath, but unto salvation, to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. For those who trust in the Lord, if they have partaken in some or all of these sins, then they would suffer chastening. That's punishment, but not wrath. They would never lose their place in God's kingdom, even if they're swept away to another country in captivity because of the sin of Israel. When God's word testifies against people, as it did Israel, as it does us, now that doesn't mean God is against us. That means he's testifying against what we're doing. He's testifying against our sinful behavior. But he's not against his people. If he were against his people, then he would destroy them. But that's not how God works, Old or New Testament. He chastens the ones whom he loves. But when God's word testifies against people, they respond one of several ways. I would say one of three ways, but I'm sure there's a fourth way that I didn't think of. So I'll say they respond one of several ways. One, they accept it and they repent. In fact, that's what a lost person does to become a Christian. God has testified against that lost sinner by saying all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He's testified against that lost sinner by saying, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. 
the wages of sin is death. That's how God is testified against the sinner and against his sin. And when a sinner agrees with that testimony, then he is repenting. Before, he did not agree with that testimony. He thought he was fine. She thought she was fine. A better person than most. Not evil, never having murdered or committed uh, heinous crimes. But when that sinner agrees with that testimony that he's come short of the glory of God, he's repented. He's changed his mind. And he's changed his mind to agree with God's testimony. And in doing so, then he may put his trust in Jesus' finished work. I love the explanation Brother Fulton wrote for the man on Facebook who was troubled about unbelief. You see, God testified against that man, and it was bad news. And that man needed to believe that the bad news about him could not save him, but that the good news about Jesus could save him and would save him if he placed his faith in it. I love how our pastor and those like him just take the Bible and show people their sin and what to do about it. it it's so simple. You may think, well, boy, Brother Andy, why don't we just close our Bibles and go home if it's that simple? Because most aren't doing it. Most pastors, most churches, so-called, most religious people are not simply relying on God's Word to tell people what's wrong with them and how to make it right. They've got all of this pop psychology that has crept into and taken over the churches. And God is still testifying against man and his sin. A second way people respond to that is that when God's word testifies against them, they write it off as man's opinion. And what they say is, well, men wrote the Bible. So it must be full of errors and in interpretations and uh, incorrect assumptions and opinions and all of that. They are correct that fallible man wrote the Bible, but they're not correct about the Bible being fallible, being mistakable. Think about this. With the Bible and its approximately 40 human authors or writers, penmen we'll call them, while all of those penmen were imperfect, their author was divine and holy and without mistake. The author is infallible. And so when people reject the authority of scriptures because sinful men were the penmen, they, whether they realize it or not, are rejecting the power of God to use such men to do his will. And therefore they're rejecting the authority of God. We covered that same principle when we talked about the seers and the prophets and how they were given God's word to give to the people. And as long as that's what they did, then to disobey what the seer said was to disobey what God said. To disobey what the prophet said was to disobey what God said. That's why it is critical to the nth degree 
that what we say is what God said. And when we explain a passage, we explain it in a way that helps you understand the truth, not confuse you, not take you away from the truth, not minimize it or dilute it or add to it, but to simply tell you what it means. The Sadducees rejected what God's Word said about angels and spirits in the resurrection. You remember that? In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, and this is our argument against people who say, well, man wrote the Bible, therefore it must be full of errors. We believe in God, but we believe there are errors in the Bible. Here it is, 2 Peter 1, 21. And this isn't the only place, but this will do us for this morning. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. There you go right there. Man didn't just pick up a pen one day and say, you know what? I think I'm going to write down some holy divine words. See if I can capture the heart of God and the essence of my writing and put it on paper and pass it down to men and maybe they'll listen to it. No, not at all. So the fact that God's word, the prophecy, that which was foretold, was not written by the will of man takes man out of the picture as being the original author of the Bible says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's how they spoke. And that's how that, what they spoke was written. And they wrote from what was spoken. God moved them to speak. And we're going to see what that actually means here in just a second. It's really good. Had prophecy come by the will of man then critics of the Bible might have a leg to stand on. After all, if, uh, if Otis 5,000 years ago decided, I'm going to write a Bible, and I'm going to make sure it goes all over the world, and I'll be famous, why, we'd have a reason to question what Otis wrote, wouldn't we? Well, Otis didn't write the Bible. He didn't think about writing the Bible. He wasn't... It wasn't his will to write the Bible. It was God's. And those holy men weren't holy before God made them holy. They were sinners. They were born of woman, few days and full of trouble, just like Job said, just like all of us. Sin from our mother's womb, lies coming out of our mouth and Stealing and anger and malice and all of that. These holy men were no different. But God made them holy. He made them holy by belief in the same Savior in the Old Testament. They believed in the same Savior we do in the New Testament. As you've heard many times before, but we're not going to stop saying it. Those Old Testament believers looked forward to the same thing you and I look back to with faith. With the eye of faith, they said, yes, as the Moses and the prophets wrote, this will come to pass. There will be a redeemer and he'll come out of Zion, seated on the coal of a, colt of an ass. That's who will come. He'll, he'll be brought forth from a virgin. He'll be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. They believed that that would happen. They believed all the way back to when God testified to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 about the serpent bruising that Savior's heel 
and the Savior bruising his head, the seed of the woman he's called. And so that's how they're made holy. They weren't holy because they followed a bunch of rules like the Pharisees said you had to to be holy. They were holy because God made them holy. And so when men are normally unholy, aren't we? I mean, that's how we're born. And if we're unholy, so are our words. But God made men holy through belief in the salvation his dear son would one day give them. And now God placed his holy word on those holy men. And this word that we looked at a moment ago, the word moved in 1 Peter chapter 1, it comes from a Greek word that means bring or brought. It has the idea of carrying. In fact, it's normally translated in the New Testament as the word bring rather than the word moved or the word brought. Now I'm going to read you that passage from the King James translation and then I'm going to read you a literal translation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now listen to a literal translation, the Young's literal translation. For not by will of man did ever prophecy come, but by the Holy Spirit born on holy men of God spake. By the Holy Spirit it was born on holy men of God, and that's how God spoke. So here's the image that passage gives us. God is holy. And so is his word. Men are unholy and so are their words. God made those unholy men holy through belief in the salvation he would provide through his son. And now God placed his holy word on those holy men, the ones he made holy. And they carried it. They bore it. And they wrote it down for us. So the people who reject the Bible as man's opinion don't really understand how God gave his word to man. And as we learned Wednesday night, the scorner doesn't want to understand. The third way people respond when God testifies against them is by trying to use one scripture to contradict another scripture. Now, if you properly study your Bible and properly understand it, there will never be a scripture that contradicts another scripture. It will never happen. God doesn't contradict himself. The Holy Spirit doesn't contradict God the Son and God the Son, God the Father. One God and the Word is perfectly harmonious. Now, when men say, well... I don't understand it. Okay, that's a different matter. You know what? I don't understand all of it. And if I knew what all understanding all of it meant, I would probably see that my percentage of understanding the Bible is very, very low. But it's a whole lot better than if I hadn't studied it all. So if someone says, well, I don't understand these two passages, and I and Brother Fulton both have dealt with people before, who had trouble with passages. They say, you know, I, I'm studying this here, but then over here in this other passage, it says this. They're not saying 
then God's word must not be true. The devil's trying to tell them that, but they're saying, I don't, I see a, I'm imagining a contradiction here and I need help. And so we try to help them and we do it by the same way we do it in here. Rather than honing in on just one part of a verse, we broaden their horizons and say, hey, look, go back to the beginning of that chapter or go back to the beginning of that paragraph. Now read, now read after that verse you're having trouble with. What does it say about that matter? And that usually turns the light on for them right there. And that's, it's not always as simple as that. But people who don't want God's word to testify against them, who don't believe that testimony against them, will try to use one scripture to contradict another in some cases. Now, religious cult leaders love to do that. They love to do that, but so does the average unbeliever who doesn't want their pet sin to be condemned. Now, I talked to you a while back about this church, so-called, the Cathedral of Hope there in Dallas that's run by sexual perverts and endorses them and welcomes them and affirms them and all of that. Well, they just had a service, if you want to call it, that's a disservice is what they had, where they uh, blessed this group of satanic drag queens. I mean, friend, where in the Bible do you ever see anything about that? But you know what that group will tell you? They'll tell you that their doing so was simply spreading the love of Jesus to people. And these folks who use one scripture to test or to contradict another, two of their favorite scriptures to use are in Matthew chapter 7, judge not, as if they have any idea what the chapter's talking about, and they don't. And the other one they love to use is love thy neighbor as thyself from Matthew chapter 23, or excuse me, 22. Hey, those are both beautiful scriptures. They come from God's word. But they need to be taught in context, and they need to be taught in order. And when you take someone like that who uses a scripture to contradict another scripture, they won't sit down and listen to you expound the truth. They're not interested in truth. They're interested in confusion, calamity, chaos. They are not interested in order, in truth, in harmony. That's not what they want. That upsets their little world. They're not going to listen to the faithful exposition of a passage they quoted in order to see what Jesus really was telling the people. And one thing I can tell you based on the study of God's word and based on the character of God is that no matter what these people say, no matter what their argument is, Jesus never endorsed sin, ever. In fact, on the contrary, he came to die for it. He shed his blood for it. In John chapter 8, speaking of that, a woman had been caught in the act of adultery. And she was about to be stoned by the Jews. And Jesus knew every one of those men who were about to stone her, and he knew about their sin even though they didn't think he did. 
And he told all of her accusers, let him who is without sin first cast a stone at her. And we know what they did. They dropped their stones and then they left, didn't they? Leaving Jesus alone with this woman. Now, had she sinned? She certainly had. Was Jesus endorsing her sin? Some would argue that he was. But the Bible tells us he was not. If you just read further down. And in verses 10 through 11, this is John 8, verses 10 through 11, if you're taking notes. Jesus spoke to this woman. Here's what it says. Now, Jesus had been on the ground, stooped down there writing. It said, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Now, if you just stop that passage right there, you might say, I'm missing something. Do you know what he said after that? He said, go and sin no more. He said, don't do that anymore. And I assume this woman became a believer at some point. And although the forgiveness of her sin was a beautiful thing to behold, I want you to remember what Jesus told her. He testified against her. He said, go and sin no more. That, what you did was a sin. You were caught in the act of adultery. Yes, the other man sinned too, but I'm talking to you. You were caught in the act of adultery. Don't do that anymore. When I say you're, I don't condemn thee either, I'm not saying go ahead and go right back to him or go find you another man. He didn't say, oh, it's not a big deal or what you do in private is your business or you're both adults, live it up while you're young. And if Jesus told her to go and sin no more, then why is it when we tell people go and sin no more, they tell us don't judge? Do they also believe Jesus was wrong to tell this adulterous woman not to sin anymore? And this is what happens when a shallow-minded person uses Scripture to justify their sin rather than to repent of their sin. When God testifies against people through His Word, He does it so they will repent. Not so they'll try to justify their sin. How do you justify yourself in God's presence in the first place? The unclean trying to justify itself to the clean? If you're not coming through the blood of Jesus Christ, it's impossible. You cannot justify yourself before God. That's why we needed to be justified. Predestinated, called, justified, glorified. <laughs> It boggles the mind, but it's proof of how strong the pull is from Satan on the minds of those who are unbelievers, on the minds of those who are shallow and who do not desire to know the deeper things about the Scripture. You know, you don't have to be a Ph.D. or have a Ph.D. or be in Mensa or anything else to have a deeper understanding of the Bible than you do right now. The first thing I'm going to tell you... And, Get this, this is the most overlooked step. Y'all ready for the secret? Read it. That's the first key right there. Read your Bible. That'll take care of a lot of problems. It doesn't solve all of them. There are some words and some ways that the Bible is, is written trans, or, or interpreted, translated, so forth, that yield sentences and paragraphs and expressions that we're not 
familiar with in our day. That's okay. You go back and look in your concordance and find out what that word originally meant in the original language. That's what I do. You can do that too. I imagine most of you all are better than I am at operating your computer or your iPhone. In fact, I'm just going to say I'm pretty certain of it. Israel didn't like when God's word testified against them. And they didn't care, and people today who don't like it don't care that the holy men of old who wrote these words and the ones who now preach them are bearing those words at God's command just like the Levites bore the Ark of the Covenant. They carried it. Israel rejected God's statutes, God's covenant, God's testimonies. And now that we've seen what they rejected, let's see what they accepted. Or in this case, followed. For you to follow something, you have to accept it, don't you? Example here, you all know I love the outdoors. And when I go fishing, I'll park my now, first of all, I get way away from everybody. I don't want to be around anybody else unless they're fishing with me. I'm not the guy who's going to stand below the tail race of a dam during the white bass run and stand shoulder to shoulder with people. I'm, that's not me. You're not going to find me there. But when I go fishing, I'll park my pickup next to the road, and then I'll walk to my fishing holes, and some of them are a long way from the road. That's why they're good fishing holes. And I'll get in the woods, and I'll look down, and I'll see a trail that does that. And it's been last year since I've been there, and I'm trying to decide which one to take. Now, once I choose and follow that trail, I have accepted that trail. And I have accepted that the trail is going to lead me where I want to go. And on a few occasions, I've begun to take a trail that looked good. And I'll notice that my head starts bumping the tree limbs. They start getting lower and lower. And I think, well, it's a good-looking trail, but it's too low for me. And that's when I realize I've gone down a hog trail. Now, you've got to be a woodsman to know what I'm talking about when I say a hog trail. I'm not talking about a cattle trail that goes from the barn to the stock tank and back. I'm talking about a hog trail. And those hogs aren't nearly as tall as I am. I tower over them. So when I'm crouching down and I say, all right, I don't want to crouch down anymore. I don't want to crawl on all fours down this trail. Then I repent and I back up and I go back to where I got off trail. And I take another road. I don't accept that trail anymore. There's no use trying to go back down it and up it and down it and up it it's the same trail it doesn't lead me where I want to go in fact if it's a hog trail it's probably going to lead me where I don't want to go now I hope that's not all you get out of this lesson that brother Andy knows how to tell if he's on a hog trail but it's at least something isn't it we accept what we follow and we follow what we accept now, Israel, look back in your text. We're here in verse 15. says, which he testified against them, and they followed 
vanity and became vain. They followed vanity and became vain. That word vanity comes from a Hebrew word that means vapor or breath. That's right. They followed vapor, spiritually speaking. There was no substance in what they were following. The gods whom they feared were not real. There was no spiritual substance in a god that did not exist except in the minds of the people who believed it did. Vanity, a vapor. Listen to what James chapter 4 verses 13 through 14 says. James 4, 13 through 14. This is for people, in case you believe that worldly gain is what you need to be striving for at all costs, at the expense of everything important. Go to now ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain. Now, stop right there. To many, maybe even most people, but to many people, that is the substance of their life right there. And they think, man, this is, this is the life of Riley. Now, y'all don't know what that means. Some of the little ones don't know what that means. This is the best I can be, the best I can do to buy and to sell and to get gain. And the act of getting gain and earning and earning more and more money at some point has, uh, has taken over that type of person's mind. You might ask yourself, why would somebody go from being a, a millionaire to being a billionaire and still be spending seven days a week, long days, sleepless nights, trying to make more money and more money and get more property and more real estate and more this and that? Because that has become the substance of their life. So that's what these people are. Now listen to the second part of that passage. To those people, he said, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. So all of you people, all of you children of Israel who think that Worshipping these false gods and, and these idols, and now you're captive by the Assyrians. That's all vanity. All of the things you tried to achieve are useless. They're vapor. And if all you follow are the things that occur between your birth and your death, then your life is a vapor, and it's vanity. It's empty. I wish more people were hearing this lesson, this truth from God's Word today. I want you to notice in that passage I read you from James, it said, for what is your life? Now that's key. Not what is life. What is your life? Your life, my life, is a vapor. 
It's vanities, physically speaking, from birth to death. All that we are in our flesh, all that we produce, all that we receive and give and endure and hope for are like breaths in the wind. They're empty. They're vanity. The overarching reason that people commit suicide is that they see no purpose in continuing with this vain, useless, physical life. And so they're taught, their thoughts get turned inward. And all they know is pain. Sometimes it's physical, like somebody who's dying of cancer and just can't fathom another day in that pain. But very often, it's emotional pain, which is just as bad to those people. Sometimes there's a great shame at something they've done or something that's happened to them or someone they've become. People have ended their lives jumping off of buildings based on that very passage I showed you. Not because of the passage, but because of the people who say, we'll go there a year and buy and sell and get great gain. You remember during the day trading hysteria, people were buying stocks and then trying to trade in for them the next day and make money, and then they had no idea what they were doing. And there were people who lost their entire fortunes and who were jumping off of buildings, committing suicide, because what they held as substance was gone just like that. And that's all they had. That's all they hoped for. Those were their dreams. Then why live? Where is my hope? How can life be lived with purpose and not in vain? Well, it's not by reading Joel Osteen's book, The Champion in You. I'm going to tell you that right now. That's not how you live a life with purpose. Or I think it was Rick Warren who wrote The Purpose Driven Life. That's not how you, and not discrediting any scriptures that were quoted in there, because scripture is pure no matter who writes it, no matter who quotes it or, or teaches it right or wrong. Scripture itself is pure. But here's how you live a life that's not vain. Here's what Israel could have done right here. So they wouldn't follow vanity. And we memorized this chapter a few years ago. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Nelda and I got to stand down here. and Did we get a little prize for that, Nelda? That's wonderful. And those first four verses... Say, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life... Now, what did we see about your life a minute ago? What is your life? It is even a vapor. Talking to those people who say, we will go there and continue a year and buy and sell and gain. Well, for the one who is dead in Christ, but alive through Jesus Christ, it says your life is hid in Christ with God. It didn't say your life is vain, did it? It didn't say your life is a vapor when you're hid in Christ. It said your life is hid in Christ with God when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. 
There's your answer to life with a purpose. That is the same answer I give a lost person who is bebopping along in their lives, thinking everything is going just fine, and they have no idea how close they are to the flames of the lake of fire. They have no idea. They don't care. I say that I would say that same thing to those people and do as to somebody who is despondent over the death of a loved one, over a child, over losing their job, over that diagnosis of a, a terrible disease. I say the same thing to them. Your life, your life, though it be vain, if it is hid with Christ in God, it is not. It is full of purpose. For the very reason that it's not your life anymore, it's Christ's life in you. You have the life of Christ, and it's not ever going to die. And boy, we'll be glad. I'm not in a hurry, by the way, for my flesh to die, but when it does, I'm going to be awfully glad that I don't have to deal with the things that come with having a fleshly body. But it's to have that vain, useless, mortal life hid with Christ in God so that his life is now our life. And to appear with Christ in glory, as that Colossians passage teaches, is to have a life with purpose, and that life is eternal. The life we live down here is not eternal, is it? So you can get as healthy, as good-looking, as many clothes as you can have. You can have the plastic surgeon fix you and shape you and reshape you, and you can go to Neiman Marcus and uh, move the shoplifters out of the way and get you a pretty suit. You can have the fanciest car. You know where I'm going with this. You can have all of that. And at the end of the day, every bit of that's going to melt because the elements shall melt with a fervent heat, right? It's gone. Except that which is eternal is not. And when we receive eternal life by putting our faith in the finished work of Christ, then the life we live in the body is no longer lived in vain. That's another secret right there, isn't it? That the world won't accept that although this fleshly body is destined for the grave one day, maybe sooner than later, I don't know, but one day it's destined for the grave. When I became a Christian, the life I lived in the body after that point was not a vain, useless life. The life I had lived before was. Because I lived by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, in fact, I'll close with that passage. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Maybe you have it memorized. Galatians 2, verse 20. The apostle Paul wrote to the church, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Because see, if it was just I, I'd have a vain life, wouldn't I? Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A life lived by faith is a life lived with purpose, eternal purpose. And what the church needs to learn and what its pastors and teachers need to learn and to teach, quit telling people how to be financially wealthy just so they can die and go to hell and leave behind a bunch of money to their children. Teach them about a life with purpose, a life in Christ so they will not follow after vanity like the children of Israel did in our text. And we'll close with that.
Let's, let's pray and be dismissed. Father, we know that when truth is taught, the devil tries to sow tares and seeds of doubt. We pray today by your spirit, you will remove those from the hearts of anyone who has heard and who has had a doubt about your word. And Father, if anything was said that was confusing or misleading, I pray also that you would burn that off just as you do dross from the fine gold when it is refined. And Lord, build us up in the most holy faith and make us a people who are pleasing to you as we continue to live a life with purpose by faith in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.